Well, I'm back with my friend John Ortberg, and uh, John, so glad to have a, another moment with you in the podcast booth to have a conversation. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, gosh. Uh, this is recreational. This is really fun. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I want us to take a stroll down memory lane a little bit. Uh, about 20 years or so ago, you mm-hmm. wrote one of my favorite books that you have written. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really one of my favorite books, period. Uh, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. Just the title alone expressed. In fact, I have my vintage copy right here. Mm. And the first question I have is, do you still have the triple pleated <laughs> khakis, extra large yeah. baggy? Do you still have those in your I'm closet I'm sure I somewhere? do. They, they wrinkle up real nice. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, uh, that's a great look. Yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much the only kind of pants I wear. I was going to say, the, those jeans. pants made everyone look great. Yeah, well, no matter I, I, your that's form. That's my goal. That's yeah, okay. my goal is just try to lower the bar as much as possible. <laughs> no one has ever accused me of dressing well. All right. Well, you, so. th- th- that's like a perfect end to the whole topic because yep. you have served churches from the middle part of the country to the Pacific Coast. Yep. And uh, you, just one question to get this ball rolling is, why do we pretend to be normal? Yeah, um, and, and kind of raises the question of what is normal. Oh, yeah. Actually, one of the things that sparked the thought for that book is I was at a grocery store and they had like the tabloids, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. in the checkout line, and there was an article on the on the cover. Uh, the headline on the cover was um, "Totally Normal Women Who Stalk Their Ex Boyfriends." Oh, yeah. Nice. And I just thought that's a very striking headline. And then it raises the question, what does it mean to be totally normal? Yeah. And uh, there's a line in one of Dallas Willard's book where he, he talks about how um, this world is not normal, mm-hmm. uh, only usual at present. That there is a norm, there is a way life is supposed to be, that whole notion of shalom. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's and we all have this sense of oh yeah that's who I want to be that's the kind of world that I would like to live in and that um ache inside of us that says no somehow this isn't normal and every day when we look at the headlines whatever it is that's going on it's like there's something wrong and there's something wrong with me there's something wrong with my pants mm-hmm. something wrong with the way that I look something so that desire to look better than we are and uh, to want our world to be better than it is, I think is actually connected to something very, very deep. Mm. Uh, there's that old uh, G.K. Chesterton line where there was a magazine. He was a writer and Christian thinker 100 years ago. And uh, they posed a question for thinkers, writers, journalists, and the question was, um, what's wrong with the world? Mm. And his response was, dear sirs, I am Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Yeah, that's that's a good line. Yeah, that's good. And it doesn't help when you're trying to be normal and people bring up photographs of you and triple pleated khakis well, from the past. You know, no, and, it's not and very friendly, especially because I know pastors at churches who actually get nicknames because they are so good looking. Oh, really? That people who attend the church will want to spot them in coffee shops and so that must be a so it just makes me terrible, feel that much worse that'd be a terrible burden to bear yeah, yeah it would be well let's move along one you know one of my <laughs> one of my uh, that's an inside joke we're not sharing with anybody so that's that sorry you just have to you have to email in and ask um, you have to search a long time for that oh pastor boy. Uh, I love the Eagles <clears throat> everybody loves the Eagles mm-hmm. at least if uh, you're a decent person you probably have at least one Eagles song memorized at least if you're of a certain vintage yeah 
maybe younger people, not so much. But one of my favorite songs is Desperado. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I find myself when it clicks on the radio singing along. And uh, I was thinking about the lyrics the last time I was singing along. Mm -hmm. It's pretty bleak. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about this guy who's really pushed away all relationships. So we sing this song, but it's really a depressing and and sad song. Why is it uh, that we so desperately need community and you write about this in in this book but you but we also simultaneously push away from it yeah. there's like this there's this tug towards community and yet we seem to be embracing more and more isolation as yeah. people why is yeah. that do you think yeah um well there's so many facets to that uh uh we are social beings and uh uh, we just literally cannot be human apart from relationship. Mm. So uh, there's a guy, Dan Siegel, <clears throat> who uh, is kind of the guru of neurological development in our day. And his word for human development and what he does is actually interpersonal uh, neurology. Mm. Um, and when Dallas Willard talks about uh, what are the basic parts of the person, what's the anatomy of the person, there's uh, the will, your ability to choose. There's your mind, thoughts and feelings. There's your body with all of its appetites and habits. And then that next layer is the social dimension of you. Mm. And uh, lots and lots of work is done around the notion of attachment. And we, we were at a dinner last night. Somebody had a little baby there. Mm. And the baby is still three or four months old. So you can pass the baby around. doesn't matter who's holding it. But within a couple more months, the baby will become attached and that's where it's okay if mom holds me or if dad holds me, but if other people that I'm not attached to yeah. don't hold me, I don't feel secure, I don't feel loved. And part of what Siegel writes about is um, uh, when the parent expresses love and says to the child, it's okay, is able to soothe the child, um, is able to look at the child and um, uh that what the child understands is that he or she is a person. And that only comes from another person. So it's not just that some people are extroverted and they really like relationships a lot, and then other people might be more hermits and they could do that. None of us could be a person outside of relationship. We were created for community in a lot the same way that we were created for food and for water, and, and we could not exist. We couldn't develop without it. Do you think that is rooted in the theology of the Trinity? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think um, when I was, I grew up in the church yeah. and that idea of the Trinity was always confusing and perplexing to sure. me. And there's a lot of mystery to it. Right. And people would try to explain, you know, it's like an egg where there's an egg and the white, I mean, the shell and the white and the yolk or yeah. something like that. And that never made a whole lot of sense to me. But what really did was the thought that God uh, actually exists in community. Mm. And so God is, it's sometimes put, um, he is too many to be one, uh, he is too one to be three. Mm. Um, that uh, uh, What that means is at the core of reality is love and love between persons. And uh, so God is three and yet one and then creates human beings in his image. Yeah. And... Um, uh, uh, makes two male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. And um, so that dynamic of um, separate persons and yet the experience of oneness, community, connection, harmony, 
mutual love, mutual delight is just woven into reality at the deepest level. It, it's a it's both comforting but also instructive that when we try to live in isolation, and there's a sort of a American myth yeah. that the strongest person mm. can live in isolation. Yeah. It's the basis of not just Desperado, but many a country western song, mm-hmm. I don't need nobody kind of things. Yeah. Or quite frankly, there's a pop song or two like that, but yeah. yet we are created in such a way that we not we not only have a, a God-shaped void in our life, as the philosophers would say, but we wouldn't you say we have a human-shaped void, that there's yeah. a, it's not a sign of weakness to need other people. It's actually a sign of, of maybe that divine nature that God has implanted through his image in us. There's a really, really good book by Andy Crouch called Strong and Weak. And Andy's a wonderful thinker and writer, yeah. and uh, he talks about two dynamics, uh, and and one of them is strength or authority, and the other one is vulnerability. And he says a lot of times we think about those as two ends of a continuum, uh, that you either have authority and strength or yeah. you're vulnerable. He says, actually, it's better to think about them as two different axes so you could have a kind of a two-by-two chart where you're high or low yeah. in authority and higher low in vulnerability, and that we are actually meant to be high in authority. We were created in the image of God, but also to be high in vulnerability. Hmm. Uh, and they were naked and not ashamed. Two things that don't typically go together. That's I mean, exactly that's right. But, but they're meant to go together. Yeah. And actually, when you look at Jesus, he is the ultimate yeah. expression of that, who in very nature God, you don't get higher authority than that. Yeah. Uh, and he humbled himself, becoming a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So actually, um, uh, part of our difficulty is we can try to have a lot of strength and authority but be invulnerable, and then we do a lot of damage, and we see that. We see that with politicians. We see that with celebrities that uh, I want to have wealth and power and fame and not need anybody. Um, Or there will be other people who um, roll over and bear their jugular, and they will be very vulnerable but not bring appropriate strength and authority into a relationship and try to operate on the basis of neediness. And then I use my neediness as a weapon to try to get you to do what it is that I want. And we're not made for that either. So that combination of being an image bearer and bringing the strength of personhood, but with deep vulnerability and um, servanthood and humility, that's what we're made for. It's a wonderful, wonderful thought. You know, it's interesting, vulnerability... Uh, wasn't a topic that was talked about a whole lot, but in the last few years, mm-hmm. Brene Brown's yep. written extensively, yep. and she's made vulnerability sort of popular again. Yeah. But then she also warns against sort of the person who goes, oh, I get it, I'm going to be vulnerable now. And almost that vulnerability becomes a, a, a type of flex, like that it's a way of ex, uh, expressing almost a oddly shaped power. I don't know if I'm getting Brene right oh. in this, but but it's, it is a... I'm going to be vulnerable, but really, it's almost I can. I, you were going to say something. You said, I, "Oh, I'm, I'm going to I let did, you take." I it. did, and I was. Uh, uh, we're both real familiar with the church world, and Andy actually writes about this a little bit. That there are times when loving people means you are vulnerable, but you can't uh, uh, reveal or share it deeply. Like if you were the parents of kind of small children, and you're in a situation where there's danger uh, and the kids want to know, are we going to be okay? 
Um, you cannot leak your fear to the kids at that point. They need calm for you. And so there are times when you might be leading something and you are feeling vulnerable or a level of fear that out of love, you don't have the luxury of sharing. On the other hand, um, it can be tempting for leaders sometimes to do fake vulnerability and be in front of a crowd and tell a story about a minor uh, piece of misbehavior with their spouse or as a dad or something, where all the people hear that story and think, oh, gosh, what a vulnerable person. And what you're actually doing is accumulating more power. Yeah, You are just presenting yourself in such a way that you know people are going to think more highly of you and put you even higher on a pedestal, and you're not actually being vulnerable. To be vulnerable, I think the word itself actually means uh, to be wounded or to be able to be wounded. Mm -hmm. So if I'm generally vulnerable with you, I am telling you something that uh, you can use to hurt me if you want to. And... Um, that's a very, very deep form of connection. Paul Turnier, who I've been reading again recently, a wonderful Swiss physician and kind of a therapist, spiritual writer, said that when you are talking with somebody in a healing or therapeutic way, vulnerability, self-disclosure is the therapist's single biggest weapon and a very important part of ministries like teaching. But it can be manipulated and there are certain pastors that get really good at doing that, and that's a dangerous thing. I just wonder, in the in the realm of Christian community, through the years in church life in recent times, it takes place in everything from uh, Bible studies, small groups, Sunday school classes, mm -hmm. different wherever Christians might gather together. Uh, there has been a press over the last 10, 20 years to early on express vulnerability yeah. as you're starting the relationship. And I've heard people argue, hey, this is a good way to bond a group together. I have concerns about doing that too soon, yeah. but maybe I'm just not trusting and uh, full of enough faith. What are you, Do you have any thoughts on that as far as, is there a time frame when you're journeying in community together where... Uh, there's different levels of disclosure and different levels of vulnerability. Does that happen early, middle, late? Thoughts? Yeah. Uh, uh, there's an old book on spiritual friendship. It was written, I don't know, 12th century, something like that, by a guy named Allred. And he loved friendship. So the whole book is about friendship. He actually, uh, he says God is friendship, mm. kind of going back to the Trinity. And he talks a lot about uh, wisdom in pursuing friendship. He says, a soul friend is someone before whom you have no secrets. But it's very important not to enter into a relationship like that prematurely. So he actually talks about if there's someone where you're thinking about developing that sort of friendship with them, you have to put them on probation. And the idea That's isn't good. that I'm above you and you're, no, you know, because no. I have to go through that same process yeah. together with you. But uh, in our relationship, I need to find out by sharing with you a relatively low-level secret, not something that could be catastrophic if you misuse it, uh, and then finding out how do you respond to that? Um, do you judge me? Do you give me advice too quickly? Do you keep confidence or do you gossip about that with other people? Um, do you share at a similar level with me or do you prefer to remain unknown? And so there needs to be a period of time where I'm testing the relationship and finding out how we are together. And if you are a safe, wise, confidential, loving person, 
And you can't microwave that. Sometimes people want to move to um, full disclosure and deep raw vulnerability way too quickly. And I have seen very up close and personally how a life can be utterly shattered yeah. when someone shares something deep with the wrong person who then misuses it and it wreaks unbelievable havoc. Yeah. And they would do anything to take that back, but they can't. So I think to be really careful that we don't romanticize disclosure or vulnerability and teach people how to pursue it wisely. It's really a good line. Let's not romanticize vulnerability yeah. because, again, I think Brene Brown's done a good thing with her writing in recent times to elevate this as a, a incredibly valuable aspect of relationships, of your professional life, all manner of the person. But it can become romantic. Yeah. I can start to think, oh, now I'm I'm a good person because I'm being vulnerable, and in the process, I can wreak devastation in my mm -hmm. own life or or someone else's. I I, I grew up in a blue collar family, dad's factory worker, mom's a secretary, so vulnerability wasn't a big uh, wasn't a big topic <laughs> in our house. Value. It was you yeah. put on a strong face and you yeah. do what you got to do because that's how life is. And so I still remember uh, I was a, a student at Moody Bible Institute interviewing to become an RA. And they said, "What you know, Bill? What's your biggest weakness?" And uh, I was not about to tell them my secret sins. That's mm -hmm. what I thought they were asking. It was a Bible college, so yeah. I told them. I literally told them, "You know, sometimes I just care too much. I just invest myself so <laughs> I'm, deeply. I'm too loving." And uh, yep. this might shock all yep. who are listening and you as well, John. But they didn't hire me for that job. They yeah. sort of saw through the smoke screen. They yeah. were like, "This guy's not real," and uh, certainly wasn't. But yeah. I didn't know how to answer at the time. But uh, you know, I think this is a this is a good thing for a leader to think through is vulnerability. We lead by example, right? So we have to have appropriate levels of vulnerability, but it has to. I like how you frame that. We also cannot do it to gain power, right? To to somehow flex, and uh, you know, it strikes me one of the aspects of this too is social media has meant private thoughts become mm. public thoughts mm. in a blink of an eye. And uh, back to this topic of community, we have more and better ways to connect with other people. Social media, the technology, we can FaceTime literally around the world. Yeah. And yet, all the statistics say that friendship is in decline. Uh, do, you have, yeah. do you have any thoughts on that? Why, yeah, why do you it's think interesting. that might be? You know, in the, uh, in the UK now, the prime minister actually appointed a cabinet-level position that's called the Ministry of Loneliness. Um, because loneliness has become wow. such an epidemic, they're trying to figure out how do we address it. Um, I, I do think a real important part of us is that we are bodily. You know, the the doctrine of the incarnation, yeah. that in Jesus God actually took on a body with a face, and there's something about being with people face-to-face -face that creates a dynamic that's very different. So uh, we've all experienced that with um, hot emails Mm, uh, yeah. And with social media, it can be even worse. When when I'm with you, if I say something that hurts you, I have to see that in your eyes. I have to look at you, yeah. and then we have to deal with that together. But if your body is not with me, uh, I can say horrible things. And part of the difficulty is there's real smart people who have figured out with social media, how do you create uh, little sites or little sounds for likes or followers that create a virtually addictive hunger inside of people. 
And then once you have that system, and then you ask, well, how do I feed that appetite? And it's generally moral outrage. It's appealing to people who are in my tribe who will affirm whatever outrage that I express, and there has to be an enemy that is the subject or victim of that. So I think uh, in the social media world, although it can be a good thing, there's sure. ways that people can remain connected with each other. Yes. Um, but generally, for the most part, it fosters a tone of moral outrage and uh, reinforces that kind of confirmation bias where I just end yeah. up reading and looking at the stuff that I already believe. So there's this echo chamber where I'm not being pushed or challenged to actually pursue the truth. Uh, and then um, other people end up becoming the victims of horrible uh, campaigns. Uh, there was a really interesting article in the New York Times this last week by a woman that was a philosophy prof, and she had written uh, an opinion piece. She's not a real public person, but she had written an opinion piece about faculty, graduate students getting unionized, and it created this big stir in social media. And she found her instinctive response was she wanted her friends to rally around her and go on social media and defend her. And she said her, her husband wisely stilled her hand because mm -hmm. he realized um, you cannot win that battle. All you can do is add fuel to the fire. Yeah. So the piece that she wrote was actually, uh, if I am canceled, let them eat me alive. Oh, I like that. That's yeah. a good title. Yep, yep. Wow. As opposed to yeah. trying to uh, trying to win that war. Wow. You know, I, I that's I, there's something to that that we go on social media and in the early days it was to catch up with family and friends. Yeah. But as more and more of us have accumulated people we don't know on social media, and there's some that are very disciplined and they only have their uh, small friendship circle, but a lot of people have hundreds of friends or thousands of friends on yeah. Facebook, which probably are not real friends, but they're connected. So the the opportunity for judgment against one another and moral outrage against one another and going on not to connect with an old friend, but to see what drama is cooking today mm -hmm. and then the temptation to weigh in on it. Sometimes I uh, sit on the couch with my iPad in the evening watching TV and I'll tell Karen, my wife, what I was going to post. And then she always says, you're not going to do that, are you? And I go, no, no, no. I just, I just got to get it off my chest. Yeah. It makes me feel better, but I wouldn't do that. But well, and the other piece is yeah. uh, uh, it, it can foster moral outrage. It also fosters a ton of comparison. Yeah, that's true. And people will go on yeah. and they'll look at Instagram or Facebook yeah. and you just see – oh, these other people are having these fabulous vacation experiences and they're having wonderful yes. meals at restaurants, fear of missing out, FOMO. Oh, yes. uh, they're yeah. getting uh, promotions at work. Rarely yeah. do people post, got fired today, yeah, get a true. really bad review. Yeah. Um, and rarely when we see that, do we like yeah, stop and pray for the person. Lord, this seems like you're blessing them. Let them right. have a wonderful vacation. I sometimes pray they get dysentery. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I don't. I don't. If you're one of my friends, I don't pray you get dysentery. But, but there's a lot of research yeah. where people people, sure. uh, if people engage warmly, uh, personally in social media, it may be a positive asset in their life. Yeah. The more passive people are on it, the more likely they're comparing themselves with others and uh, feeling badly about their lives, about their families, Very about their work, about their experiences. So it generally fosters depression in people. That makes total sense. If yeah. you're just... Uh, uh, kind of, what do they call it? Sneaking around, uh, um, cyber stalking or whatever, but you're not commenting, you're just looking around. Yeah. It, it could stir something inside of you that 
even amongst your friends, you're looking. I mean, where we all there's all celebrities out there you could look at too, but amongst your friendship circle to see what I'm missing out on the house they just bought, the car they just bought, the the experience they're having, the weight they just lost, whatever yep. it is. There's yeah. all these different things that don't always inspire us to cheer on those we know, but kind of grouse a little bit inside of us. Um, Sherry Turkle, who's this MIT uh, professor who has done a lot of work on social media and its impact on us, talks a lot about how there is now an empathy gap. Yeah. Because what happens is um, when I'm looking at a screen, um, I'm in charge of the interactions. And if I get bored while I'm texting somebody, I just stop texting them. When my body is here with you and we're having a conversation, if it gets boring, I got to find some way to manage that. I got to get through to the other side. I got to figure out how do I ask a question? How do we shift the topic? How do I deal with the feelings that I'm having inside if it's awkward or confrontational? If it's me in front of the screen, I don't have to deal with any of that. And so part of what happens is there's a loss of skill in managing face-to-face relationship that happens over time when body-to-body is replaced by body-to-screen. And uh, it's one of those things where it's just much easier to deal with a screen because I'm in control. Part of being in a relationship with another person is I am not fully in control. And we were not made to be in control, but then we lose the uh, ability to increase learning and skill in navigating a relationship where I'm not in control. You know, it's interesting. When you wrote this book, social media was in an it's infancy, really. Yeah. I think Facebook had, you know, just a handful of people on the platform. So, yeah, yeah I don't think you even mentioned it nope. because it wasn't a thing. And now it's a dominant uh, part of the conversation yeah. around community. Well, um, not that long ago, I heard you give a sermon. And, and actually, I think it's even a chapter in the book. It's the Fellowship of the Mat. Mm. And it's I've heard you give this sermon, I think, a couple times. And I, I love that message. Mm. And uh, it's rooted in the story in the Gospels. Uh, maybe just give us a real nickel tour of it, of the story itself. But, but with it, the question is, is how do you get friends like that, mm. that fellowship of the mat yeah. friends? And by the way, if you're listening, that should inspire you to like go get the book, Everybody's Normal, to get to know them, and you can read the chapter as well. But John, tell us a little bit about that. What is it? What, what is that fellowship of the mat, and what's it take to have a friend or friends like that? Yeah, it's, it's uh, one of those wonderful stories about Jesus where he's teaching, and in the middle of his teaching, all of a sudden, plaster starts coming down from the ceiling, and everybody looks up, and uh, there is a man who is being lowered on a mat to Jesus because he has friends who love him so much that they think if we can just get our friend to Jesus, Jesus will know what to do. He will figure something out. Uh, it's like that's that's as far as they're playing. We just got to get him to Jesus. They can't get him to Jesus through the front door because the crowd is so great that they can't push their way in. So somebody has this idea. Hey, we could, you know, back then often roofs were mostly just kind of straw and matted materials. So they could be uh, pierced and repaired quite easily. So they just lower this guy. And uh, what we're told is that when Jesus saw their faith, he heals the man on the mat. And it's very striking. It's not the guy's faith. It's the faith of his friends. And uh, so it's a wonderful, very powerful story of community. And it does raise that question, 
what kind of relationship did they all have together to create that kind of commitment and care and concern for each other? Really good friends. There's somebody that will tear a roof down uh, to help get you to what it is that you need. Um, That's a pretty cool thing. So uh, a few thoughts on that. I I think the, the starting point is to really want friends. That's pretty important. And to identify that. And I think particularly for men often, um, that's a facet of our life that tends to be underdeveloped. And um, nobody ends up having articles written about them or on a magazine cover because they're a really good friend. You know, we we tend to be set up to want to achieve. And um, in my case, um, when I was growing up, uh, although I had a sister that was a year older than me and we were always really close and my cousin Danny uh, I, I loved and uh, our family uh, had closeness to it. But I didn't really have a friend until I was a sophomore in high school. And I wouldn't have even known that. I, I think I would have experienced loneliness but wasn't even self-aware to be willing to admit that. I don't think I could have admitted that. And then all of a sudden, in the space of a week, there was a guy that we had a class together. We also sang in a choir together. And um, I went over to his house one day. We worked on a project together. And uh, all of a sudden, I had a best friend. And it, it happened really, really quickly. So I think I treasured it a lot more than I otherwise would have because it was so absent from my life. And it was so vivid when it became present. And I, I think to, uh, to want it, uh, and then look for people that you really enjoy being with. Hmm. Um, That's pretty important. If you're going to be friends, you better. It has to be. Better it's a weird it. word for it, but it's got to be sustainable. Yeah. And what makes it sustainable? I, th- I think sometimes at that line when yeah. um, Moses is talking to God and God's going to send yeah. Moses to see Pharaoh and Moses says, I can't speak. And God says, okay, Aaron will help. And what God says to Moses is, even now Aaron is coming to you. And when he sees you, his face will be glad. And so that That's picture of mm. who are the kind of people where when you see them, uh, uh, it just makes you feel happy or um, I, I think of folks who are good friends, when I think of being around them, it always feels like it will be energy-producing and life-giving. Yeah. It won't be a strain. It won't be a drain. I'm more on the introverted side, mm-hmm. so I can easily feel that sense of, okay, I'm going to be in this social situation or be with this person, but it will feel a bit effortful. Yeah. And when somebody is in a category where they could become a good friend, part of what will happen pretty quickly is... Um, it doesn't feel effortful. You find yourself being drawn to the opportunity to be with them. So I think paying attention to that dynamic is really important. And then uh, it needs to be somebody whose character you admire. And uh, I don't know if we talk enough. I don't know if parents talk enough with our kids about how to choose friends well and how to think about when it comes to a good friend, not just the people that you work with or walk through life with, but when it becomes to when it comes to somebody who's a good friend, if you're with them over time, um, will they help you become yeah. a better person? Will they challenge you as well as encourage and support you and cheer you on? Um, so if you want to develop the fellowship of the mat, I think really wanting friends, look for people where... Uh, you naturally want to be with them and they want to be with you. And then people uh, whose character 
you really admire? You know, that's a good distinction because uh, most people have, uh, for lack of a better term, they have project friendships. They have people God's yep. put in their life, and, yep. and it's an important relationship. It's important that they relate to the person, but it's effort. And it might be good spiritual effort, and that doesn't mean it's bad, and it doesn't mean they don't like the person. They might love, they must love the person very much, but but a friend isn't a project. Aristotle said there were three categories of friendships. Um, there are um, utilitarian friends. We talk about networks in our day. There we go. People that are useful to you, and they might help you at work, or they might help you financially. And then there are. Um, what might be called amusement or recreational friends, somebody that I go golf with. It could be somebody that I drink with. Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily somebody that leads you in the right direction. Um, the highest form of friendship, he said, are partners in virtue. We that's engage good. in training for yeah. virtue. Our, 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 a genuine friend is somebody who cares about you enough that they want you to become a truly excellent mm-hmm. person. And that's not the Bible, that's Aristotle. But I think it's deeply, deeply yeah. true. And I think um, when it's at its best, that's what the church calls people to. Well, that leads right into that next question I was going to ask, is the distinction between community in general and Christian community yeah. in particular. Yeah. I mean, most people uh, who love the Lord uh, have relationships outside of the faith and inside. But what what are the distinctives, do you think, that make up a community in general, but in particular, what are the aspects of Christian community that are yeah. really essential? Yeah. Um, you know, so I think there's a huge amount of overlap, and I think sometimes in certain parts of the church, we exaggerate uh, uh, to make ourselves feel better, the difference between us and them and people inside the church and people outside the church. And human beings are human beings. We're made for connection. Uh, To have someone who loves us, cares about us, is truthful with us, those are common human qualities that any wise people or group have understood throughout time. Um, I think in thinking about distinctively Christian community, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's got a wonderful book called Life Together. Hmm. And part of what he says at the core of it, he, he, he talks about the rhythms of solitude and community. And he says, let the one who is afraid of solitude beware of community. In other words, I have to be okay if I'm just alone, if I'm trying to suck life out of you because I'm avoiding anxiety or problems inside of me. That's not good. But at the same time, let the person who is afraid of community beware of solitude. Um, if I'm afraid of other people, if I don't like people, then that's a problem. And he says, Christian community is defined primarily by this. He says, there must never, ever be direct contact between two people. Always between you and me is Jesus. And when I first read that, I kind of didn't like it. Because it felt like, well, no, I, 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 I want to be just super close to people. But the idea, I think, is that... Um, uh, when Jesus is between you and me, um, then I always keep in mind, uh, Jesus, who do you want Bill to become? What do you want for Bill? And how can I help be a part of that project as opposed to I want to get something from Bill. I want Bill to make me feel better. I want Bill to puff me up. I want Bill to collude with it, you know, whatever it is. I want to draw Bill into my little project and use him. Nope, always between me and you is Jesus. We must never have direct contact with other... And and yeah. that's what reminds me um, uh, 
My ultimate goal is not intimacy with you. My ultimate goal is love and to try to love you, to will and to work for your good. Boy, just uh, hearing that strikes me that some of the deepest relationships I've had in my life, I mean, the relationship I have with my wife, that I think is the nature of our relationship, is that I want for Karen what Christ wants for her. I want her to be the most exemplary in her faith, but I want... I want what God wants for her. I know that sounds very altruistic, mm-hmm. and I know she would say that about me. In fact, she probably prays that very hard that I become more mm-hmm. Christ-like. I, I think her prayers are making some difference, but not at the speed at which she wishes. But the the friendships that we've had, if we were to reflect on those, the ones that have made the biggest impact, those people wanted for us, sometimes more than we wanted mm-hmm. for us. Yeah, and that made a that made a, a, a quite the mark. Yeah. Uh, Paul Turnier writes about if you love someone, you have to be ambitious for them. Yeah. But not ambitious that they'll make a lot of money or that they'll uh, become famous. Uh, Ambitious for their character. Ambitious for their soul. It's almost like in the skill of parenting, there's the parent who wants their kid to play the instrument they never played, the sport they weren't good at, Mm -hmm. the the grades that they weren't able to pull. But really, that's they. It's not that they want greater for their kid; they're just living vicariously through the kid. Right? It's mini me. Yeah, I I want to have mini me. That's a lot of parents. And but then there's the the parent at their healthiest who wants the very best God wants for their child, yeah. which may not be uh, anything involving the tuba or a baseball bat. Mm-hmm. Although I, can, I can't say I've never, I've never met a parent who said, I, I really hope my kid plays the tuba. Now that I say that, John, have you? <laughs> no, I think no. that's a very small sliver of people. I would think so. Yeah. There's got to be one out there. But Well, um, on an on a equally serious note, one aspect of Christian community is confession. And you talked about this a little bit. Uh, at the at the start of building trust, mm-hmm. but um, you'll hear people talk about one imperative, one very important aspect of Christian community is confession of sin. Uh, what role do you feel that plays in a healthy Christian community, a healthy yeah. Christian relationship? Yep. Uh, I think to have a fully disclosing friend, uh, to have somebody before whom I have no secrets. Uh, is a terrifically powerful um, spiritual tool. And I would not want to try to do life or ministry without that. Um, I think uh, I think 12-step groups, AA has a lot to teach us in this regard. And of course, they came out of what was called the Oxford Group, which yeah. was just an attempt to recapture discipleship in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so that notion of conf- James 5.16, confess your sins one to another and pray for yeah. each other that you might be healed, um, I think that's a very, very deep dynamic inside of us. I think the reality is, uh, well, I- I'll make it personal. So I have a friend that I met uh, in grad school at seminary named Rick, and we became very, very good friends. And about 10 years into our friendship, we decided that... Uh, uh, we would enter into a confessional relationship with each other where I would tell Rick everything and he would tell me everything. And uh, the first time that we did this, I spent a couple weeks kind of getting ready. And um, in AA, they will call that doing a fearless and searching moral inventory. Uh, and they have some very good frameworks for doing that. I was not aware of at the time. But I, I spent a couple of weeks working on that as best I could and then walked through all that with Rick and then 
uh, I didn't even want to look him in the eye. Like I was so embarrassed and ashamed and uh, had no idea what he would say next and was completely surprised when he looked at me and said, John, I have never loved you more than I love you right now. Powerful. Wow. And part of what that taught me was um, you can only be loved to the extent that you're known. Because if there's something you don't know about me, you might say, John, I love you. But inevitably, it's just the way that the mind works. I will be thinking, yeah, but if you knew this, you wouldn't say that. So you can only be loved to the extent that you're known. You can only be fully loved if you're fully known. And I think that's why uh, in AA, that fifth step is uh, admitted to God, ourselves, and another person, the exact nature of our wrongs. And what's interesting about addiction, and I think it's very much a part of God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Um, Addiction reveals what the soul needs to be healed. Because if you're not on that track, you're going to drink again, you're going to use again, you're going to die. And so it has been a, a quite empirical discovery. It is only in the context of that safe and wise, but utterly honest relationship that full healing comes to a person. I think that's why the notion of confession has been central to Christian practice. But unfortunately, uh, back in the Protestant Reformation, uh, when we realized the priesthood of all believers, that was a good thing. And part of uh, the role of the priest is to listen to confession and to pronounce absolution forgiveness. Unfortunately, what ended up happening was instead of everybody being a priest, nobody's a priest. And we all figure, I can just go direct to God so I don't need to go to another person anymore. So uh, I I think uh, finding a person to whom uh, I tell uh, all of my struggles, all my temptations, all my sins um, is terribly important. Rick and I talk every morning. We talk as long as we're both available uh, at 6.50 in the morning. We call each other up. Wow. What happened That's yesterday? What temptations did you face? Oh, what are you doing today? Pray for each other. And we've done that for several years now. That's a very, very life-giving practice. You know, and it's a just a, a great testimony of having a friend but what I don't hear you saying is, is, well, in every small group I've ever been in, I just confess my sins. And uh, uh, I know there will be sometimes small groups where somebody says that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, I think that's terribly unwise and very destructive. Finding a friend like that, again, with Rick, we were 10 years friends yeah. before we began that process. So I think it's also very possible for people, if they don't have a friend like that, to have a therapist or a pastor, somebody in their life that plays a more formal role where they're able to do that. One of my friends is a therapist at Michigan State University, and he said uh, uh, counselors are the secular priests of the modern era. People come in and they confess their sins. They don't call them sins. They just tell me all the terrible things that have happened to them or they have done to others, and they're seeking absolution. Yep. And so there has to be somebody, but it shouldn't be everybody, and it should be thoughtfully laid out. I think that's really important, because we'll hear this from time to time. We read it in literature. We know that confession is part of the Christian life, but there's just not a lot of airplay on how to Mm -hmm. go about it. So that'd be a good book or article sometime to dive into that a little bit more. Certainly, the traditional liturgical churches have a little more practice with this because they actually have a system to it. As it happens, I'm actually working on a book on making the 12 steps available as a framework for spiritual growth. 
uh, to everybody, including people that don't identify as addicts. Oh, no, so that's good. That's what I'm hoping. I can't to do. wait. I think I speak for everyone listening. We can't mm. wait to read that one. Uh, that one, we all need that. Well, uh, here's my last question. We'll close with this one. How do we? Um, so I, I joke that one of my hobbies is judging people, <laughs> and as it turns out, it's uh, it's a popular hobby. It is. If yeah. I were to start a club, it yep. would involve everyone. So how do we lay down judgment? How yeah. do we? How do we resist the urge that? Thanks to sin, thanks to just the culture we live in, you name it. How do we just lay that down? Yeah, I remember uh, the old TV show, The Simpsons. Oh, Ned yes. Flanders is the Christian character. Yes, yes, Homer Ned. asked him, you know, what have you been doing? Where have you been? I bet it was a way at a Christian camp learning to be judgmental. Yeah, I remember that episode. Um, <laughs> uh, but, of course, the reality is uh, uh, judgmentalism uh, is ubiquitous and universal. It is. And we live in what Dallas Willard actually called a culture of condemnation. And he said, we use condemnation engineering as a way of managing our relationships. Sounds and right. uh, we are incredibly sensitive to rejection and being condemned. Uh, and so to identify that and to say, uh, it's so interesting. I was actually just listening to a talk. Dallas died almost 10 years ago. I was just listening to a talk of his recently where he was commenting on uh, Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he was making the point, if you look at it in context, we often think that just means as long as I believe the right stuff about Jesus and the cross, I don't go to hell. But that actually Dallas is talking about the fact that we live in a world and a culture and a spirit of condemnation. And if we move into a relationship with Jesus, we are delivered from condemnation, including self-condemnation, and engineering our relationships with condemnation. And we can exercise uh, moral discernment. We have to do that. But it's kind of like when you go to a dentist, uh, he'll point out if you got a cavity, but he will not... uh, judge your worth as a person based on that. And I I think for me, probably the single biggest help is um, the more I remember and am aware of my own sinfulness and my own brokenness and how chronic it is and how much I have to depend on God's acceptance of me, um, including the problem of my judgmentalism. Uh, so like when Jesus says, uh, you know, you hypocrite, you're glad to point to the speck in somebody else's eye, but you know, first you got to start with the beam on yours. The idea isn't, oh, I can get the beam out and then go around identifying specks. The beam is my tendency to judge and condemn. And, uh, as I live in the reality of my sinfulness and my brokenness and my need for God, it's very hard to condemn another person if my own guilt and brokenness is vividly present before me. You just ruined one of my favorite Bible verses. I thought all I had to do is get the log out of my own eye, and then I could recreationally <laughs> yeah. judge. Yep. Yeah. And now you're telling me that's yeah. not what Jesus meant. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I hate proper interpretation of Scripture. It totally sucks, ruins it? Yeah. some really fun things. No, what a great reminder, though, because uh, to your point moral outrage and judgment, it um, it doesn't exist just within the church. It's within all right. humans. It's in all cultures. It's spread across the entire planet Earth that this is one of the ugliest sins that's at the core of many of a person. And so our 
tendency to do it is even maybe made worse by the fact that we realize we're made right with God, not because we're better people, but because of Christ's work. So the reminder of our own brokenness, our own frailty, and the expression of grace to others. So, well, John, it is just always a delight to sit down and talk with you, Mm -hmm. uh, to learn from you, to hear from your wisdom. Thank you so much for the book you wrote over 20 years ago, the book you're working on now, and Mm -hmm. just the way you contribute spiritually to the lives of others. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's, It's a joy. Thanks, Bill.